morning. So good to see you guys. Sweet, sweet time of worship. And we are jumping back into um, the book of Acts. We're in chapter 2. And I have just been struck these last few weeks as we've been getting into this book just by the kind of the interesting connection that we have. Like we're studying the start of this. You know, what we do, it started here, and so we're learning about that and trying to glean what we can from what they did and then apply it in our own context, which is a little different than first century Palestine. Um, But it's just been a a, a super encouraging uh, season at at this point. Uh, I wanted to kind of get our heads in a certain space as we go into this passage today. And I thought about a book that I read a couple of years ago. It's called Crucial Accountability. And one of the big ideas of this book is um, that all of us at least have the potential to have hard conversations. You know, we're in relationships, whether that be at home or with kids or a coworker or a neighbor or whatever. There's these awkward conversations where we need to address something. And um, their, their book says that we naturally or instinctively do this benefit to cost ratio, the BCR in the business. And uh, basically we're trying to see, is it worth having the conversation? Uh, the phrase they use for that is mental math. That whenever we have a confrontational conversation in front of us, we're doing mental math to see if we ought to go ahead. And if the cost seems greater than the potential benefit, we don't have it. But if we believe that there's a greater benefit to having that hard conversation, we will. Now, I kind of thought about what are some of the costs and benefits that we might experience as we enter into a conversation. On the cost side, there could be indifference. There could be hostility. There could be hurt. Isolation or even just flat-out rejection. So we're aware that all of that could happen if we dip our toe into that confrontation. But on the benefit side, uh, we and this other party, we could experience growth. We could experience a greater understanding with one another. We could grow in wisdom. That'd be a beautiful thing. Or might even experience a new level of intimacy because we had the hard conversation. We enthusiastically have these confrontational conversations when we believe the benefits outweigh the costs. Now, with that in mind, I want us to go back into Peter's first sermon, okay? They've just had uh, the Holy Spirit poured out on the 120 disciples, and a crowd gathers, and they start making some observations about this, and Peter steps up and begins to speak. And what hit me was in Acts 2, Peter's mental math has changed dramatically. Uh, Jeff alluded to this last week. I want to go just a little bit further with it. So right before the crucifixion, Jesus is arrested. Peter is following. He's kind of hanging behind in the shadows. And then he gets confronted by some people who are associating him with Jesus. And here's his response, Matthew 26, 73. 
says, bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly you too are one of them for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. Mental math, not worth it. Just want to fade out, stay under the radar, right? Now fast forward 50 days. Day of Pentecost, chapter 2, verse 22, listen to Peter. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Man, that's some different calculation going on there, right? So what happened? What happened in those 50 days? Well, there were a few things that I want to point out. First of all, Jesus predicted three denials. Those happened and then a rooster crowed. I think that got his attention. There was an empty tomb. He observed that. He saw that Jesus was not there. And then he saw the risen Christ shortly thereafter. He had a 40-day master class with Jesus about the kingdom of God. I'm sure that had some impact. And he saw Jesus Christ ascend right before his eyes up into the clouds into heaven. And then finally... And perhaps most importantly, he was a part of this outpouring of the Holy Spirit that I'm sure changed him forever. So as a result, his mental math changes and he enters into a Christ-centered confrontation. I do want you to notice as we go through this passage how many times the name of Jesus shows up. He is at the very heart of it. Whereas 50 days earlier, he did not want to be associated with Jesus in any way. Peter basically shared three things with this crowd in the midst of his sermon. First of all, he told very religious people, remember these are Jews from all over the place in Jerusalem to celebrate the feast of Passover and the feast of Pentecost. Very religious. And he told them, the last thing they wanted to hear, but the most important thing they needed to hear. And that was that Jesus was exactly who he claimed to be. He explained that that was verified in several ways. He mentions mighty works, wonders, and signs performed right before many of these people in the crowd. That, that verified his identity. His sacrificial death on the cross, that was just no coincidence. That didn't just kind of happen out of thin air. It was prophesied in the Old Testament, and it happened just as the way God said it would. Finally, the victorious resurrection. Plenty of eyewitnesses who saw the risen Christ. He's basically saying to a group of religious people, you should have seen it, but you missed it. And there are a lot of consequences associated 
with that. He doesn't put this in the text, but it did strike me. Maybe this is a place where we can connect with this first century group. I think they were blinded by their self-righteousness. You know, they, they weren't willing to accept this Galilean who was letting them know that they needed God to forgive them. And honestly, as I think about religious middle Tennessee, you know, one of the biggest challenges is helping a person come to a place where they see their need for God. We're all just kind of okay, right? If I can pay my bills and fill my belly and I got a roof over my head, I mean, I'm doing all right. And I don't lie, I don't steal, I don't do all those bad things. Yeah, I'm fine. Self-righteousness is a huge hurdle to life. Secondly, Peter reminded them that they had crucified and killed Jesus by the hands of lawless men. It's pretty strong. But seven weeks prior to this moment, many, if not most of the people in that crowd were yelling, crucify him. We'll take Barabbas, known criminal. He deserves to be hung on a cross. We'll take him. You can hang Jesus. They were accomplices to the murder of an innocent man. So they're guilty. And then lastly, Peter adds an important clarification. He says that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So while they are guilty, they are responsible for the choices they made. He didn't want them to make any mistakes about understanding that what happened to Jesus was exactly what God intended and that his plan was redemptive. Jesus will come one day to judge, but he came, he left heaven, took on flesh, dwelt among us so that he could redeem, so that he could save, so that he could deliver sinful humanity from the consequences of their sin. It was crucial for those first century Israelites to be reminded that God was in control even at the moment when they felt most powerful. Probably something that we need to know as well so that we don't cling to earthly power. One thing is for sure, nothing and no one will be able to derail God's redemptive plan. He was carrying it out then and he is carrying it out today much in the same way. So, in summary, in Peter's first sermon to the crowd, again, primarily made up of religious Jews, Peter highlights three things. They ignored the clear evidence of Jesus' identity during his lifetime. They were complicit in his death, and then they dismissed the news of his resurrection. Now, does that sound offensive to you? Do you think anybody in the crowd kind of felt like he was stepping on their toes? I think so. I think to a self-righteous religious Jew, this would have been incredibly offensive. Just seven weeks earlier, they crucified Jesus. 
because of how offensive he was to them. And yet here's Peter bringing him right back in front of them. Costly mental math. But Peter speaks up. I think it was kind of like Paul in 1 Corinthians one twenty three. Here's what he says about speaking up. We preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block. The Greek word there is scandalon. Scandalous. A stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. It's a joke. A mockery. But Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. That's why he preaches. And that's why he preaches such an offensive message. If he doesn't, they won't realize their need. Now, we're not told at this point in Acts 2 how the crowd responded. Um, My hunch again is that they might have still been in denial. And as I thought about denial, I thought uh, that denial doesn't diminish what is true, right? Truth is true no matter what anybody thinks about it. Peter knew what he had seen and heard. He was in the presence of the risen Christ. He saw him, heard him, touched him, got his instructions from him. And I'm sure Peter would would like to have said to the crowd, just trust me. But he, he takes another step and he says, well, if you, won't, if you won't trust me, then maybe trust somebody more important than me. How about King David? How about him? Would you take his word for it? In this next section, he pulls David's words out of Psalm 16, 8 through 11, and reinforces this redemptive plan that he was talking about. Look at verse 25. It says, for David says concerning him, speaking of Jesus... In a sense, he's speaking for Jesus. We'll find that out in a moment. But David writes, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Now, Psalm 16 is known as a confidence psalm. So the writer is basically recording his praise and trust in God's provision and care. So King David, inspired by the Holy Spirit, recorded his assurance, his personal assurance, that God would sustain him in the face of his mortality. So that's the real context for David right then and there as he's pinning it. But what Peter wants this crowd to know is God was doing something through David then that David probably didn't even realize. He was writing words that would be more fully um, expressed through a descendant of his later, Jesus. And that those words would express exactly what Jesus thought. Like read those words again and think about the life of Christ. And then as he's facing death, 
Jesus says, I saw the Lord always before me. He is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. My heart was glad. My tongue rejoiced. My flesh will dwell in hope. You will not abandon my soul to Hades or let the Holy One see corruption. Those are the words of Christ written a thousand years before he took his first breath. Peter understood, guided by the Spirit, that David prophetically expressed the confidence Jesus had that the Father would deliver him from the pangs of death and into his presence. Now that phrase, pangs of death, it's literally agonizing torture executed by a cruel master. So death is personified. Um, We find out in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul describes death as the final enemy of humanity and of God. So it's in a sense a person, a master. But death couldn't hold Jesus down because he was an innocent victim. And so death had to release Jesus to resurrection because of his identity because of who he was. Now, Peter continues. He's going to explain his references there to David and to Psalm 16, beginning in 29. He says, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us today. So in other words, he did go to Hades or to death. He was in a tomb. He didn't get released from that. Verse 30, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that he would be that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and uh, of that. We are all, speaking of all the disciples, we are all witnesses. Now, the oath that Peter references here uh, is in 2 Samuel 7. And God made an oath to David to place a descendant of his on his throne, and he would rule from that throne forever. Now, if we follow the lineage... There were a lot of kings that followed in the line of David, and they all died, and they all have tombs, right? But there was one in the lineage of David that was made king, having overcome death. Jesus rose from the grave, and he received absolute authority in heaven and on earth. Jesus said that himself. Remember in Matthew 28, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. He's that Davidic king who because of his perfect life and his sacrificial death, he was made the Davidic king who would inhabit that throne forever and ever in absolute authority. Peter knows this. He isn't speculating. He isn't grasping for some kind of explanation for the mysterious empty tomb. He knows what he has seen and he knows what he has heard. And he saw Jesus ascend. And let's not miss the connection between the ascension 
and the giving of the Spirit. What did Jesus say to his disciples when he talked about the Spirit? He said, I have to go away so that I can send a helper. So Jesus had to ascend in order for the Holy Spirit to be given to the church. The fact that the Holy Spirit was given to the church guarantees, verifies that Jesus has ascended and currently sits at the right hand of God. He's making this case with Jews who know their Old Testament. So they, they should get this. Now, as, as far as Peter is concerned, an eyewitness can only testify to what they have seen. I mean, that, that's it. We'll see that theme again and again here. The disciples, they, there's a little bit of a sense in which they're like, I don't know what else to tell you. I saw him. He's alive. And he can save you. The mental math will keep some people silent. But when you recognize the consequences of the silence, the cost of it, I think it will move you to speak. And as I think about Peter and I think about some of these other disciples, there are many, they weren't great theologians, they weren't educated at the highest levels or whatever, they just knew who Jesus was, what he had done, and how you could be in relationship with him. And I would say if there's anything that we can relate to, it's that. You don't need to be a great theologian. You don't need to know the answer to all of the difficult questions that might get posed by an unbelieving world. You just need to know this Jesus And that's what you need to talk about. And there are plenty of resources to answer some of the other questions that that may get thrown at you. But don't let it send you to a silent place because of the mental math. Let's keep going. Verse 33. Peter says, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, quoting Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. That's the second time he said it to him. Essentially, he's saying David not only died, he definitely didn't ascend. So he can't be the one responsible for the arrival of the Holy Spirit. Jesus did die, rose again, ascended into heaven. The spirit is here. We've got a choice to make. And the implied choice in this text is, will you be a friend or a foe of the one that God made Lord and Christ? That's the decision that everybody has to make, friend or foe. The members of this crowd witnessed the supernatural manifestation of the Spirit. They saw that. And then they've been given explanation for how that could have even come to be. 
If Jesus is exalted at the right, at God's right hand, then he is Lord, which is basically he's saying he is God, and Christ, which is to say he is Messiah, he is the Savior. And then logically, those who are his friends are saved. Those who are his foes, according to David, they become his footstools. Now, these Jews would have understood what a footstool was. And the disciples even, like if you think about the conversations that they had with Jesus, remember when they thought about the kingdom coming and what that meant to them? So they're oppressed by Rome. Rome is the enemy of God and the enemy of Israel, the oppressors. And in their minds, the kingdom of God is going to come. We're going to squash Rome. We're going to be in control. Rome is going to be God's footstool. That was their hope. And Peter is saying, hold on a second. I got news for you. It isn't Rome. I mean, it is, but it's bigger than that. Twice he's told them, you crucified the one that God made Lord and Christ. That means you're a foe, which means you're a future footstool unless something changes. You got a choice to make. Now, before continuing in the text, let, let me just make an observation here. While bringing the great news about Jesus to these people, I want us to notice that Peter doesn't avoid the reality of why Jesus came. It's humanity's sin. And there is a reality in our culture where we are attempting to popularize or temper the gospel for fear of hurting someone's feelings or crushing their self-esteem. And I, I don't think I'm overstating this, but I don't think the Bible gives a rip about our self-esteem. Here's the deal. Your self-esteem and mine will get in the way of us ever having life. Like we have to come to the end of ourselves. Oh, our danger is thinking too much, not too little. We need to come to a place where like, I'm done, I'm empty, I'm at the bottom. Dear God, please save me. That's what the gospel does. But if we are sugarcoating it, if we're massaging it so it doesn't sound so harsh or so hard, then, then the hearer doesn't get to that place of their real need. I'm not talking about being mean or condescending, no name calling, none of that. I'm saying with gentleness and respect, speak the truth in love, but let's speak the truth. Apart from Christ, you are dead in your sin. If you are dead in your sin, then your destiny is eternal separation from God. Christ crucified for the wages of sin is offensive. It is. 
And there isn't a person on earth that's ever been saved that wasn't first offended by that reality. But that's the process. The gospel isn't about us getting a better version of this life. That is pathetic. It's about us getting real life while deserving death over and over and over. Let's not try to rescue people from legitimate grief over their sin. Let's let that do its work. Notice how the crowd responds. This tells you that it hit the mark. Verse 37, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? That is the sweetest words an evangelist could ever hear in all of life. I don't know how many of you have had that happen. Somebody just randomly came up and said, by the way, I know I'm a sinner and lost and in trouble. Can you please tell me how to be saved? It doesn't happen often. But when it does, you answer the call. That word, that phrase cut to the heart, it means feeling sharp pain connected with anxiety, remorse, and sorrow, being troubled or stung or stunned by your need, by your sin. They were cut to the heart. And then they asked the most logical question in the world. You're telling us there's a savior. What do we have to do to be saved? Notice Peter doesn't say, hey, I can see you guys are upset. It's okay. Don't panic. Don't worry about crucifying Jesus. You don't need to feel so bad. It was just an error in judgment. He doesn't do that, does he? He says, repent. That's the answer. You've been going one way and you've got to turn and go another way. That's the meaning of repent. It is to turn. And specifically, it is to turn from your own way to the only way that leads to life. Repenting, it's turning from your own way to the only way that leads to life. That way is this Jesus. That's what we're calling people to. And it's the only remedy there has been or ever will be for the consequences of sin. It's repentant faith placed exclusively in the person of Jesus Christ. John 14, 6, heard it a hundred times. I'm going to say it again. What did Jesus say? I am the way, the truth, the life. That's exclusive. No one comes to the Father, no exceptions. No one comes to the Father but through me. He is our only hope. There is a mention um, in Acts 2.38. You probably noticed this or have heard this before, a connection between repentance and baptism. The, the concept is what they call baptismal regeneration. And the idea is that you must be baptized 
to be saved. And they point to this verse. They're like, look, Peter says, repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. It sounds like you got to do both, doesn't it? I get, I get how people come to that conclusion. The problem is elsewhere, and we'll see this in the book of Acts chapter 10, we're going to come to another moment where there's a group of people who come to Christ, are converted, and baptism comes after faith and repentance and the indwelling Holy Spirit. So how does that happen if it's required? That would be an impossibility, wouldn't it? Everything hangs on a little preposition there, the word for. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. That word is better translated as a result of an expression of or a reflection of the forgiveness of your sins. So repent and then be baptized to symbolize, to profess your trust in him. Your trust in the fact that he has forgiven you. Now, having said that, according to Peter and according to Jesus, baptism is not optional. So there's a spectrum. There's some people that put way too much emphasis on it. And then there's the other end where it's just like, hey, man, you know, if you feel like it, it's cool in the church to be baptized. And nothing could be further from the truth. This is absolutely commanded. And in that day, if you trusted in Jesus, guess what the next thing you're going to do is? You're going to be baptized. That was the way for you to express your identification with him. And so, I want to be honest with the text. I want to be true to this word. And that is to say that if you haven't been baptized, what is standing in the way? And I'm not trying to be hard or harsh. I'm, I'm trying to have a confrontational conversation. And just say, if Jesus commanded it, then we have a choice. We can either obey or we can say, you know what, I'm just not comfortable with that. I don't know if I'm really ready. The, the readiness to be baptized is rooted in one thing. Have you placed your faith in Christ? If you have, you're ready to be baptized. So I promise you guys, I would love it if we had 50 people next week that came up and said, I need to be baptized. All right, let's do it. Let's get the water trough up here and let's go at it. Let's shout to the world that we have trusted in Christ and that he is our savior. That's the purpose of it. And then look at how this passage ends, verse 41. So those who... So those who received his word, that means they trusted in what Peter was saying and they placed their faith in Christ, they were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. I bet that was something. I, I couldn't help but wonder, just because of the way church is today, if that had happened, I wonder how many people would go, gosh, I mean... 
I liked it when it was just 120. You know, I knew everybody. We were so close. I think these people were excited out of their minds to see the goodness of the gospel transforming their world. I, I want to be excited out of my mind about whatever growth God might bring about in our church. And it's never, ever been from day one, it's never been about having a huge church. It is about reaching as many people with the gospel as we can. And so if the Lord sees fit to grow this congregation, then so be it. But I, I just want to be ready for whatever God does, even if it's adding 3,000 souls in a day. Amen? Let me give you some questions to consider as you think about this text for our so what today. A few different places we can go. One is, how is your mental math when it comes to sharing Jesus with somebody? Just process that with the Lord. And maybe it feels too costly, but maybe the Lord could bring a change there. Secondly, how are you affected by the denial of the world? Does that shut you down? Or does it provoke in you a, a fresh awareness of what you know to be true? I think that's where that denial of the world is supposed to take us. We just come back and go, I don't know what else to tell you. Except I know he is who he said he is. Very practically, are you a friend or a foe of the one God made Lord in Christ? And if you are thinking today that you're a foe, I would love to talk with you. And let's, let's introduce you to Jesus. And lastly, have you been baptized? And if you haven't, let us know. Um, there'll actually be a link this week in the newsletter that just says, we want to have a conversation with you, hear your story of faith, and then we'll do some baptisms around here, okay? Take a few minutes, pray through that, and uh, Kevin will close us out.